I invite you to open your Bibles once more to John chapter 4. This week, however, we're taking a step back in time, so to speak, as we uh, move back to consider the end of the conversation that Jesus had with the woman at the well and then the subsequent conversation that he had with his disciples, um, in, through which we are given some tremendous instruction. This passage is itself uh, tremendous, and the insights that can be gleaned are far more than we have even in the three weeks that we will have given to it. Uh, James Boyce, who pastored for a long time 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, gave 11 weeks to just these verses and didn't exhaust it, so we certainly will not. And yet, one of the things that's important is to consider the overview of this passage as well. Because when we began, we see Jesus coming and encountering this woman that he, by tradition, should not have spoken to, uh, both because of her ethnicity and because she was a woman, and even also because of her reputation. But we are reminded that the gospel breaks down every barrier so that people, including people like us, would be able to experience reconciliation with God and God's grace and eternal life. The conversation continued, and so not only did we understand what eternal life and the gospel does and, and how Jesus pursues a people, but the conversation then moved, and we were able to glean from that important insights as to what it really means to worship and to encounter the living and true God. And then this morning, what we'll see through this conversation that Jesus has with his disciples what it means to be on mission for God it, from Jesus' own teaching. And that's a pretty wide instruction. The gospel, worship, and mission is a full range of the Christian life, all of which are touched upon with great insight in this particular passage. This morning we begin our reading in verse 27, continuing through verse 42. What we have here is somewhat of a, a split scene. Continuing with the conversation as that wraps up with the woman, she goes off, as we'll see, and then Jesus speaking with, her, with his disciples while she continues to go about calling the people that live in that town. Uh, it's all going on at the same time. Beginning in verse 27, we read this. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which, for, for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. 
Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The word of our God. May he bless us and enrich us with it. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Father, we come this morning not only having offered praises that you are worthy to receive, which I hope are expressions, true expressions of our heart. But we worship you now in this time by giving to you our ears, our minds, and even our hearts, that you would speak to us in every aspect of our being by these words that your Holy Spirit had inspired that were written by your servant John. Even as we consider them, Lord, we worship you by longing to hear what you would instruct us and teach us about yourself, about ourselves, and about life in Christ. Bless us in these moments that we may truly be shaped by your word and therefore a blessing to those who are around us and a delight to you, our Father in heaven, who has enriched us beyond our imagination in Christ and in the heavenly places. Father, may we experience a taste of that even now, and therefore we worship you by our hearts longing for you all the more. We pray all this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. My curiosity was captured late last fall by a piece that I read from the Washington Post. It was about the renowned aviator uh, Amelia Earhart, the first woman who flew across the Atlantic and whose plane tragically went down somewhere in the Pacific when she was trying to circumnavigate the 29,000 miles uh, around the globe. Apparently, scientists have come to conclude that a, the skeletal remains that were found on some Pacific island in 1940 that have been in possession of the British for a number of years, has, is they've determined those are likely to have been those of Amelia Earhart. And so the historians uh, have come to the conclusion that she had survived her plane crash and had lived on that island for a, an unknown amount of time, obviously not very long. Her plane had gone down in 1937, and the remains were found in 1940 but that she had survived for a time as a castaway and had died of some unknown cause uh, while uh, on that island. But as intriguing to me as the article was, was the fact that they're continuing to search in the first place. Because as I was reading this, I was intrigued by one, the conclusions that they so confidently came to and yet qualified words were like likely, probably, and they're writing articles about that. That just kind of caught my attention, is wondering if, if you don't know any more than this, then why are we reading about this? It caught my attention enough that I actually researched it, and I found an article in the Smithsonian Magazine that told pretty much the same information, but the headline of that was, will the search for Amelia Earhart ever conclude? Which is really what prompted me to think, why are we doing this? It's not that she's not worthy or that any person is not worthy of being found, but it has been 80 years since her plane went down. 
And with all that we have, they still can not come to anything conclusively. And then I thought to myself, even if she were still around, she'd be 120 years old, which tells me she probably wouldn't still be around even if her plane hadn't gone down. So in no way am I trying to minimize her significance, but it just, it just was curious to me as to why we're so passionate, why we're continuing to pursue the answer to the question of whatever happened to Amelia Earhart. But then it struck me that I think the story shows us something about ourselves and about the need that we have within us. We have a need for resolution. We have a desire to know what happens and we have a, a hunger to find that which is lost. And we're not satisfied until we find an answer that tells us definitively what has happened. We're happiest when we find the person and find the person alive. And so that's why we are reading periodically about hikers that are lost in, in the mountains. And we're delighted when we find out they're found or a child who gets lost in the mall or separated from their parents. And we're delighted when we hear that they are found and they are reunited. But we just have this longing for resolution and a hunger for lost things to be found. Our Lord Jesus Christ declared, according to Matthew, that I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. And in this passage, and really this chapter and, and, and the preceding chapter as well, we see that lived out, being played out before us as Jesus is encountering not only this woman at the well, but in the previous chapter, a man named Nicodemus. John has put these two together to just show the fact that Jesus is coming for all sorts of people. You may remember when we looked at the passage on Nicodemus, Nicodemus was a respected Pharisee, religious leader who came to him still longing for answers. And Jesus pointing out to him that what he needed was a, a new birth. And then we see a totally different person a person who is not known, who is not respected, who is not a religious leader. And he speaks to her and tells her who has come to draw water from a well, what she really needs is living water that comes from God rather than just drawing out water from a well. Now, we look at these two people and we're fascinated by how different they are. One is a religious somebody. Jesus refers to him as the teacher of Israel. So he was a somebody. And this lady was a nobody. And the only thing she was known for were for the very reasons that many would assume that God wouldn't want her in the first place. But more important than how they are different is the fact that they are also the same. Because despite their differences, they have the same need. And Jesus speaks in common language using illustrations from daily life to both of them about the same thing. Both of them are in need of eternal life. And so to Nicodemus, he says, you need to be born again. And to this woman, he says, you need living water. And in both cases, as he presents that, he makes it known that that comes through faith in Jesus. And by the way that John has strung this together, and the depth of the conversations that he records for us, we are reminded that whether we are more like Nicodemus or more like this woman, we're somewhere on this continuum, no matter how we are different, we are all the same. 
we have the same need of eternal life, which is found in Jesus, and he breaks down the walls in order to give that to us. In the portion of the passage we're considering this morning, though, Jesus moves from talking to people who are in need of being introduced to the idea of eternal life, to people who would reasonably consider to have had it, people who had been born again or were trusting in Christ and believing in Christ, people who had drunk deeply of this living water that he had given to them because they're walking with him and he's continually teaching them, instructing them, and investing in them, and they are following, learning, and obeying what it is that he is giving to them. In the passage, as we see, we see them coming back from basically a run to the 7-Eleven. They come into this place. There was no place for them to go eat. They needed something to eat. So whether Jesus instructed them to go or they just thought it was a good idea, and it was a good idea, they do need to eat, they run off to figure out where they could find something to eat, whatever. And they are just now coming back and see Jesus engaged at the end, a tail end of this conversation with a woman. They didn't question him about it. They just talked with each other. And then they waited until the conversation was over before they go over and, and speak. They didn't want to butt in. But when she leaves and leaves her bucket behind, then they come to Jesus to finish what they had come to do. It only makes sense. They went out to get the food. Now they're back with the food. And they say, here's, here's what we found. And Jesus offers a, a rather interesting response. Certainly it was perplexing to them. And, and to some extent it can be perplexing to us too, which is why we need to dig in and understand and to uh, evaluate it. He says, I have food that you don't know about. And the disciples didn't understand what he was saying. And there's a part of me that is so glad, not only that they didn't understand what he was saying, but that John, who was one of them, chose to record it for us. I've said it before, and this is clearly one of those examples. The disciples are rightly sometimes considered the disciples because they're just so dense. You know, Jesus is talking, and they're hearing every word, and they have absolutely no idea what he's talking about. And then Jesus has to go and try to explain it a little bit further, and they are saying basically, okay, I think I got you, and he's saying, you're not even close, and, and he continues to explain what is, is going on here. And the reason that I'm glad that this recorded is because it is both a comfort and a reminder to me. It is a reminder to me that I am a lot like them, and God is instructing through his word and by his spirit, and I am so slow to catch on to what God is doing because I am so cons consumed with my own agenda. And so I figure God's on board, and he's trying to talk about whatever it is that I want to think about, whatever it is that's occupying my mind when God is constantly saying, no, 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 you need to reorient your thinking and constantly change what your focus is and get focused on what I am talking about, and then it'll be easier for you to understand. And yet even when that happens, I'm still so slow to pick it up. And so the fact is, these guys remind me I'm not alone, that they're as dense as I am, and they are as dense as many of you are as well. So it's important, at least from a very practical, if there was no other lesson that I learned from this, is misery loves company, and I'm not the only fool that's out there. 
But not only did they not understand, but it's not easy to understand what Jesus was talking about. Now, he, uh, addressing them, realizes they don't have any clue because, again, they, their response when he says, I have food you don't know about, was, did somebody bring him a burger while we were gone? I mean, they're still on the same track, and, and it's understandable that they would be there. But we also recognize here Jesus is doing this, and the Lord through Jesus does this on a regular basis. He seizes daily, regular opportunities to take mundane, normal things and to show that God is involved in everything, and there's a spiritual lesson that can be gained from almost anything. And here, it's simply from the whole idea of food. Now, we need to back up for a second to understand what Jesus is saying, because Jesus does elaborate for them. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. We back up for a second. We are reminded that Jesus, as he was speaking with the woman at the well who had come thirsty, drawing water out, he took that object lesson and said, what you need is this living water, not just the stuff that you're drawing out. And he offered that to her, which comes in himself, which is a promise of the new life, the Holy Spirit who dwells within all who believe. And it's the way... It's, just, it's the promise of, of, of eternity that is, uh, that is alive within those who believe. And now, as he's speaking to the disciples, people who have already tasted this living water, who have ostensibly drunk deeply of it, he's saying that that living water that is alive within you also creates a corresponding hunger to be obedient to the one who has called you. That's what Jesus means when he's saying, my food is to do the will of the one who has sent me. It's a reminder that the Christian life is not just about we're saved and now we go about our business, but we are called and enfolded into a purpose. And that the spirit who dwells within us, who is the living water, he creates that hunger. It's a, it's, a, it's a consequence of the spirit dwelling within us. He creates that hunger. He creates that passion that makes us long to do what he wants us to do and to fulfill his purpose, his work that he's called his people to do. Now, as we understand that, there's really two principles that I want to unfold here that comes out of that reality that the living water creates this hunger for us that are related to one another, but they're both distinct but they're both vitally important for us to understand. And the first principle that we need to consider is this, is that what Jesus is saying to us here is that our spiritual nourishment is a necessity in our lives. Now, as I was reading that this week, I have to confess one of the first thoughts that popped into my head while I was grappling with what Jesus was saying, and particularly this implication of the foundational, the necessity for us to be nourished spiritually was it I'm thinking that Jesus hasn't read Abraham Maslow you know in his hierarchy of needs those of you that studied psychology in in college you're probably very familiar with this and others of you may have heard of it and probably many of you most of you couldn't care less but indulge me for a moment Abraham Maslow was a prominent psychologist American psychologist during the early part of the 20th century in 1943, he published a paper called, titled A Theory of Human Motivation 
in which he introduced what is his now famous pyramid of needs. And so on the bottom of the pyramid is, is what drives, is the base need for people. And then he moves up uh, through the uh, pyramid in terms of once we have certain base needs met, then um, we have other needs that, are, that need to be met. And, uh, and he talks about our need for then safety as, as a secondary need. And then a sense of, of belonging or, or being loved. And then above that is our, our sense of, of, um, of esteem, that we recognize that we are respected. And then the highest part of that, which is not the foundational, but that where we tend to live is the sense of self-actualization, that we want to achieve something of significance, know that our lives matter. And each of those are built, and the whole point that he makes, which is really brilliant in, in a lot of ways, is that, as we'll experience in our church for this coming week, if we don't know where our next meal is coming from, if we don't have a sense of shelter, if we don't feel that we are secure, we're not particularly worrying about whether our lives matter. We just worry about whether we're going to live. And in many ways, his observation is, is, is brilliant. And in no way do I want to say that what that Maslow has written is wrong. But what Jesus says is totally absent in Maslow's hierarchy of needs in one sense. Because he says the foundational need is what you eat, what you drink, being, having shelter, being warm. That is foundational. And Jesus comes here and he's saying, my food is to do the will of the one who has sent me. And while many of us don't necessarily consider spiritual things as being among the most fundamental of our needs, Jesus is clearly declaring that it is. Consider what uh, Bible scholar Andreas Kostenbarger says. In this statement, Jesus asserts that fulfilling his mission is more important to him than physical food. My food is to do the will. And if it's more important to him than food, which is a basic necessity of life, then that means his spiritual nourishment is a basic necessity of life. Maslow doesn't put it there, and many of us don't put it. Now, to be fair also to Maslow, if you look at the whole hierarchy, all of it is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. That's a whole other sermon. Now, we need to understand that Jesus is not saying that being spiritual replaces food, or that there's anything unspiritual about, about eating. In fact, you know, the Apostle Paul tells us in, in 1 Corinthians that we can eat and we can drink to the glory of God. So there is a way of even, even eating. We, that's a spiritual activity as well. And it certainly is a biological need, and Jesus demonstrates that because we're told at places he thirsts or he is hungry, which is expressions of the humanity that he had. And so there were no way are they minimized. What Jesus is saying here that we don't really consider too often is that our spiritual need is every bit as important as those basic physical needs. Now, some might say, well, that's true for Jesus because while Jesus was human, he's also unique. This is the first. I've not seen anybody taking trash out while we've been in here. But anyway, um, um, Except, Jesus addresses this other times. In the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus was speaking to the crowd that is gathered, he says this, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, 
What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body or what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And are you not of more value than they? And then he continues on with that same thought. So therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And Jesus in this instruction is telling us that there is a spiritual dimension that we must address that as important as the physical things are, and even as they can be a spiritual thing, spiritual activity when we engage in them, we need to make a priority of our own spiritual nourishment, which is something that we tend to neglect or think that is an add-on. And therefore, many people are spiritually malnourished, maybe because we underestimate how important the feeding of our souls is. Now, historically and traditionally and biblically, we understand that we feed our souls, and if this is important, here's how we do it. Bible study is vitally important to us. Jesus says, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's a reminder to us we need to be regularly feeding on his word. Sometimes when we feel very empty or sometimes we feel very weak, it's because we have not had a regular or a good diet of Bible study in our lives. Sometimes we focus on the junk food things. It doesn't mean that it's, there's no, no nutrition in it, because all the word is beneficial. But we focus on the incidental things, trying to figure out when Jesus is going to come back, rather than what Jesus did for us on the cross. There's not any real spiritual benefit. Some, but it's not the same. That's not where our focus, which is why we're told to remember that which is of first importance. That's the dietary necessity. And I also think that I've seen in, in Christians, and, and, and probably the great danger of being a preacher is this, is some of us develop spiritual bulimia, biblical bulimia. What I mean by that is we take in an awful lot and then we spit it out on everybody else, but we don't let it digest and it change and nurture our own souls, both of which hinder us from being strong and nourishing our soul. And so we need a regular diet of, of the word. Many people feel God is distant, and to me that's often an indication of prayerlessness. You know, somebody feels distant if you haven't talked with them in a while. God has promised that he's always present, always there. He's calling for you to speak. Sometimes you may just feel unnerved. And it's probably because you're maybe going through the motions of worship, or maybe you're not regularly in worship, but you're not experiencing the renewal that God promises when we come into his presence as we go through the motions of seeing his glory recognizing our own sin, confessing it, being renewed in his grace and an experience of the elements that God has given. The scriptures tell us that Bible study, prayer, and the elements and sacraments that we receive in worship, those are known as the, the means of grace. And by them, our spirits are fed. And it's a priority that Jesus is saying that we need to take care of. Because he says it's as important to us as is our food. And so we see what Jesus is saying first, that Spiritual nourishment is a fundamental need that we have. And we are nourished biblically by what we take in. But Jesus says 
in this passage also, we are also nourished, not just by what we take in, but what, by what we give out. Because he's saying here, my food is not just, he's not talking about Bible study, he's not talking about prayer, he's not talking about worship. He's saying specifically in this instance, my food, what brings me spiritual nourishment, is obedience to the will of the one who sent me. And he's not even just speaking of simple obedience, although obedience is always an exercise that strengthens us. But he has in view here a particular obedience. And so while we understand first and foremost that spiritual nourishment is a necessity for our lives, we also need to recognize that missional engagement is essential to our souls. That's what Jesus is talking about here. It's not just a matter of, I do everything that the Father tells me. He has said that elsewhere, and that is vitally important. But focusing on what he's saying to his disciples here, people who are followers of his, people who have already experienced the new birth, the living water, people who are still walking with him, he's testifying to himself, and he's explaining to them what they need to know about their own souls. And he says to them, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. The word sent is an indication there's a mission. And there's work to be accomplished, is what he said. And so there's something very specific. And the context and his further instructions really zero in on the fact that missional engagement is necessary for our souls. Because the context is this. He's where he shouldn't be. He's taking his disciples where they shouldn't be. He's engaging a person and then soon to be people that he shouldn't be speaking with. They were unclean, according to Jewish tradition. They were socially at war, and they just, Jewish people not only didn't like them, they didn't care about these people. And yet Jesus has kicked that wall down, and he's there, having just shared the gospel, given life to somebody who others couldn't care less if she went to hell or not. This is the context. And then he says to them, interesting, is... This is what I've sent you into. And I, I had to wrestle with, what does he mean by sent here to them? Because the only thing I know that they could have sent them to do, and we're not even told he did, is send them to 7-Eleven. I mean, they went with him. They followed him. But I think the implication here is that if you sign up to follow Jesus Christ and you go with him, then you are commissioned. But the very fact that you have experienced that new life, you now are sent someplace. And in this case, he sends them to a people they didn't even know they were being sent to. They just thought they were making their way home. But he uses an analogy. It would have been a common phrase to them, perhaps in any agrarian culture. Because when he's telling them what he means by his food, he also is saying to, says to them, do you not say that there are four more months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest now. Now what he means by that, they would have heard the phrase, there's no biblical recording of it, or even the phrase in ancient documents. But it's reasonable to understand that that was probably a common phrase that was used, and those of you who are gardeners, you would understand it as well. In a couple of weeks, when we know that the weather is getting warm and you plant your seeds, you're not expecting to go back out that afternoon and pluck whatever it is that you planted. You know that there is a time between planting and then reaping what it is that you had planted. And so they would have understood that, and so it was an old saying in an agrarian culture 
just to remind people you can't do everything at one time. There's a process, there's a time for everything, and so you plant, and then generally it takes four months until there's a harvest. So they would have understood that statement, and Jesus saying that's true for your, your, your gardens, but it is not true in the kingdom of God. And he turns that phrase and he says, okay, this may not be in season and you may not have thought you planted anything, but lift your eyes up and look around you and you will see that there are things that are ripe for the plucking right now, ripe for the picking, ripe for the harvest. And maybe he meant, as you know, we just got here. I just planted the seed this morning. And this particular woman, the seed was planted and boom, she blossomed immediately. And as we'll look here in a moment, as we finish up, we're going to see that same thing happen in the immediately or over the course of a couple of days in the lives of the people in this town. And so Jesus is saying by that instruction that missional engagement is expected not only of him, and he's doing this, but those who are his followers are sent and are instructed to look around and expect even at any given time there are those who are in need to receive the gospel and, and can be harvested for the sake of that gospel. The question is, where do we plan to fit in? Where do you plan to fit in? It's not a simple answer. Some of you really haven't thought about it. And the fact is, too often, many of us who are like the disciples is we're willing to take it all in, but we're hesitant to give it out for whatever the reasons may be. And our motives may be different, but we need to be very clear. Jesus is saying that it's expected and our souls are nourished. It's like food for our souls to be engaged in mission. It's also not an easy answer because there's so many different ways in which you can do this. Don't allow the choices to stunt participation anywhere. Providentially and most obviously, we have an opportunity this week to engage people as an expression of compassion and mercy. People are coming to us, people who do not have homes, people who do not have necessarily meals, many of whom do not have family, and many of whom have very few friends. You have an opportunity by participating, even if it's just coming and hanging out for an hour or so, to be a friend to one who is lonely, to be an encourager to one who is hopeless, and to plant a seed in one who may think that life is hopeless as well, or have very good reason to think that there is no God, and if there is, that he's not good. Now, some who come will already be believers, and others are not, but you have an opportunity to come and to invest in people in that very practical way. Mercy is one of the ways in which people are called to do that, and several of you in this congregation, you are admirable in this. You are examples to us all. I would name you, but I don't want to put you on the spot, Audrey Jester, um, and... Um, and she's not alone. There's many others that are, are doing this as well. And your heart's passion and the lament some of the people in the congregation have had for a number of years is we as a church have a long way to go. We've taken some steps, but we are nowhere near what we could be doing 
if we were willing to give out as much as we are willing to take in as a people. It may not be through mercy necessarily, but it could be engaging different people groups throughout the nations. Next week we have an opportunity to visit with one of our own, Preston Clarkson, who for a number of years has known that he was going to go to minister to a specific people group. And not even just a specific people group, but even to a people from a particular country. It was just his passion. And God in his providence, and I stand amazed at this, has worked it out that at the time that he was raising support to be able to go into the field with his family, every newscast on every channel was talking about the very people group that he wanted to minister to, and our country was debating as to whether we wanted to let these people in. And so here's Preston saying, well, hey, you know, I'm over here. I'm actually going to them. Now, maybe you're called to go minister with Preston among Syrian refugees, whether it's there or someplace else. Or maybe there's another people group that God will put on your heart. But you know that you want to reach the nations. You just have this particular interest, but you're called to engage the neighbors, people throughout the nations. Another sphere that is often neglected is, or not even considered mission at times, is what I refer to frequently as the mission to the next generation. It's your investment in our children, whether it's through keeping the nursery or teaching Sunday school or the catechism class or the VBS. When you invest in our children, you are investing in mission in the next generation. And it becomes food for your soul even as it is beneficial to them. There is no limit to the way that we can be engaged in mission. And maybe that's part of the reason why we're not. I hope that's the reason. But if you're like me at times, it's because I'm selfish and I'm comfortable and I would rather just go about my life, and if God drops somebody in my life, then I'll talk with them. The idea of sacrificing and suffering for the sake of somebody else, it doesn't feed my natural narcissistic selfishness. And so I have to die to that in order for my soul to be nourished. And Jesus says here something that's also fascinating, because it also can be intimidating to go and say, what do I have to offer here? And Jesus takes something that people would have also been familiar with, a phrase that would have just been a, a symbol of the injustice of our world and turns it upside down as a promise of the kingdom of God. What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus says, some sow and some reap. Now, if they understood that in a culture, it was a reflection of a reality that we still see at times in our culture or people lament about. There's some people who work very, very hard. They just don't seem to see the rewards of their labors. And there are other people who seem to have everything. They just get everything, and we're not sure if they ever worked a day in their life. And so that phrase could be a symbol of injustice that we see, of inequality within the world. And Jesus says, but not in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, both the sower and the reaper are going to rejoice because the whole issue is every one of us has different gifts, everyone has different callings, everyone has different opportunities. And so there's only one purpose, which is that we engage in mission for the sake that God, who is seeking people who will worship him in spirit and truth, will be able to call the people from every tribe and tongue and nation, and we go about it using our gifts, whatever they are. And they may lend themselves to sowing, teaching, evangelism, supporting, or you may be the person who's blessed, as Jesus says the disciples are here. You just kind of show up, and people, having already heard the gospel at some time, they have questions, and all they want to know from you is, how do I actually become a Christian? And you have the opportunity to see that fruit be born, not because you had done any great investment, 
because God has a calling on all of our lives. But in order for us to experience that, we need to go and invest. And while we fear that that is going to take too much out of us, Jesus declares to us it is an essential to our soul, and we will be blessed and nourished if we engage. And so if we are malnourished because we're not studying the Bible, because we're not praying, or because we're not engaging God in worship, the evangelical church, the PCA, our church, my life, if I'm spiritual nourished, it may be because I'm not engaging missionally to share the gospel with people who are in need. And yet Jesus says to me and to you, as he says to the disciples, lift up your eyes and see the harvest, and we see the results. And what I see here, I'm not going to elaborate much, you can look for yourself, tells me this, is the gospel is the hope for the world of reconciliation. See, this woman goes and invites everybody to come see and talk to this guy. Now, maybe they come out of voyeuristic curiosity because her statement is, you know, she had a reputation. He's told me everything I've done. So people, you know, thinking, well, that'll be a heck of a story. Let's go see what, you know, let's see what we can hear about this. Something that's not even fit for HBO. But I think it also reveals that there is a hunger within these people that they would be willing to listen to somebody that they despised. Because she's telling them that there is a hope that is deep within them. And maybe this is the guy. And then these Samaritans who hate the Jews invite a Jewish rabbi and his 12 disciples to stay with them. The Holiday Inn Express was still full. They stayed in their homes. That means they would eat with them, shared fellowship. And in this picture of what takes place here is we are seeing what the gospel does. It knocks down the barriers to relationships. It brings people who otherwise would hate each other together because they realize there is one hope, one faith, one God, and one salvation in Jesus Christ. And even people who should have nothing to get to, the world says should have nothing in common, they become one. We look at a world and wonder why we're devising, uh, in division, and we hope that we can find some answers. I'm telling you, Jesus Christ says he alone is the answer, and the only way that that's going to take place is if God's people are willing to invest themselves for the sake of others and for the sake of their own souls. So may we lift up our eyes and see the fields that are ripe all around us and all around the world, that they and we might be blessed by the promise of God in the person of Jesus Christ.